Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Banter on the Parkway. I am your host, Brian, from BannersOnTheParkway.com, and I am joined, as always, uh, by a little fella who uh, hates Valentine's Day as much as Rob Manfred hates baseball. It's Brad. How are you doing, Brad? I don't, I don't hate Valentine's Day. I do hate people who pronounce it Valentine's Day. That drives me nuts for some reason. Um, you, you just said Jif. Also, yeah. no one does that. You said GIF before we went hot. You have lost the high ground on pronunciation. That's how you pronounce it. If you're a moron. I've not heard someone say Valentine's Day since I was like seven years old and hung out with other seven-year-olds. Who do you I heard somebody say it does that? Saturday night. And okay. I would say. The kind of people that I interact with on Saturday night are not champions of the English language. I'm probably safe to leave it at that. Anyway. We've derailed already, haven't we? All right. And I'm also joined by a man who hates the entire month of February as much as Rob Manfred hates baseball. It's Joel. How are you doing, Joel? Please don't ruin this. Uh, Super bad, because as you pointed out, it's the middle of February, and I also learned pitchers and catchers were supposed to report today, but they're not going to because of Rob Manfred. So thanks, Rob. Rob Manfred and his flaming hatred of baseball. I don't understand how he became commissioner of baseball when he overtly hates baseball. Uh, Because he acts like a bullet sponge for the owners while they suck as much money as they can out of the game while we're distracted by hating Rob Manfred. I think is the answer to that. Anyway. Um, I was really so, scared when you said suck there, where that was going, but thank you. Yeah, I was real scared when you pronounced GIF with a soft G. So I guess we're all being victimized by other people's speech patterns. Anyway, uh, if you guys want to tune in to Joel and I just badgering Brad, um, Basically, come find anytime the three of us are together. But we're going to talk about Xavier for now. Uh, Xavier has dropped out of the AP poll uh, in one of the great miscarriages of justice um, here in really human history. Uh, They're unranked. They're uh, receiving votes. Uh, So if you count receiving votes, they're 27th. But um, Xavier's string of being ranked is over. Uh, Nate Johnson is a game time decision for uh, the, the St. John's game coming up this week. Um, his knee is sore, but structurally intact. He has not practiced. He took uh, quite the spill um, against UConn, and it looked like he uh, he may have banged his knee against uh, someone else or, or uh, hyperextended it. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to speculate, but um, there is some soreness. And Adam Kunkel is back to full go. Uh, he has overcome his uh, non-COVID illness. And then it was announced today, Xavier is in the Phil Knight legacy um, next November. So that will be their their multi-team event that takes place over the Thanksgiving season. Um, there are going to be some big names at that, at that tournament, Brad. Yeah, so 
Xavier's in the Phil Knight legacy bracket. Um, and that is across the draw, I guess, from the Phil Knight invitational bracket. It's two 18 brackets in a 16 team tournament that doesn't have a name yet. Um, so we just have the names of the brackets, but in Xavier's are Duke, Florida, Gonzaga, Oregon state, Purdue, West Virginia, Xavier. And then of course the other team that everybody thinks about uh, big Northwest power, Portland state um, is also in the Phil Knight legacy bracket. Um, the way things go, I feel, I figure Xavier's probably going to draw Portland state first, and then we'll get one of the really good teams next and only have a chance for one good win. But no, that is, there's no one that you play in that tournament other than Portland state. Um, that isn't going to be a chance for a huge, probably a Q1 on a neutral site early, um, depending on how good Oregon state is next year um, as they kind of ebb and flow. But that's a, a really good tournament to be in. Um, there's going to be a lot of talent out there. It's good to see Xavier's right up there with Duke and Gonzaga when it comes to scheduling these things, Duke, Gonzaga and, and Portland state. I was going to say they're, they're also on a level with Portland state. So let's maybe uh, chill, but yeah, that is a, um, obviously this year with the um, preseason NIT, Xavier got a chance uh, at some big wins and they picked one up against Virginia tech. So this will be another opportunity. Portland state, just for those who are curious, uh, are currently ranked 280th in the Ken Palm and they are coming off a, uh, a pretty bad road trip to the state of Montana. They they lost to Montana State and Montana. Um, so it's not great. Maybe they'll be great next year, though. Joel, what do you have? Uh, I think you're overlooking their season sweep in Northern Colorado. Uh, also, Portland State is one of the host venues for this tournament. So they didn't, uh, you know, Phil Knight, God rest his soul, maybe. I think he's passed away. Uh, he wasn't having trouble finding an eighth team for this side of the bracket. Uh, it's going to be played uh, at least partially within the confines of Portland State's arena. So that is how they uh, finagled their way into it. Much like, uh, who is it, Chaminade, who they always play in Hawaii, and they get to play in the Maui Invitational. So also maybe Portland State's got like a top 100 recruiting class coming in, and they're going to jump from 280 to like 28. But gun to my head i think it's just the hosting thing uh phil knight is is still alive and um he's at the ripe age of 83 uh so hopefully he will be able to be in attendance and, and watch xavier hoist uh the yet unnamed trophy uh next november um just a couple of things um in college basketball general news um I think it was Cracked Sidewalks who came out with a pretty interesting look this past week at how ESPN's BPI affects tournament seating. Um, Joel, can you just kind of go into the weeds a little bit on if this is a scandal, if this is just sour grapes from someone whose school's never on ESPN? Um, what is what is going on with ESPN and the BPI? Wow. Um, so first of all, I would love for this to be more of a scandal than it is. I think ESPN is by and large a uh, negative, probably a net negative on the sporting uh, slate, and certainly in terms of college basketball. Uh, basically what Cracked Sidewalks did 
is they looked at ESPN's BPI, which is their proprietary basketball power index. And, uh, you know, it is a, uh, a metric that is partially known how it's calculated, but not entirely public. And what they found was this year, there was a strong correlation to teams who looked better in the BPI than they did in the Ken Palm and Sagarin. Uh, with teams who play most or all of their games on ESPN or the ESPN family of networks. Um, you know, starting with, obviously, they looked at a, a handful of Big East teams. Uh, they looked at UC, who was kind of an outlier here by being worse in the BPI, despite playing on the ESPN family of networks. All the way down to, uh, excuse me, Wagner and Liberty. Liberty. It was a, a fairly limited study, and it focused uh, entirely on metrics this year. I think to cross the threshold between uh, interesting and actually informative, they would have to, uh, you know, extrapolate this thing out a lot farther. Uh, but what is interesting is that a, uh, you know, an entity that has a financial stake in. Uh, certain parts of the, the basketball season also gets a metric put on the team sheets that the selection committee uses to uh, kind of seed and evaluate who should be in, who should be out, and where they should be. Um, so I don't necessarily buy the entire uh, question or the entire premise that Cracked Sidewalks has here is that the BPI is manipulated to uh, make these ESPN teams look better. But I do agree with them that uh, there is at least the appearance of a conflict of interest or a uh, impropriety of some sort by having that metric on the team sheets. And I think, uh, you know, it would probably be better for everybody involved if that went away. I, this would be like if Fox Sports had something that they called the BEB for Big East is Best, and that was on the team sheets as well and they just gave teams a 10 point bump for being in the big east and on their network but then they also didn't tell anybody how they came to those conclusions because that's kind of what bpi is i mean espn legitimately could bake in a seven point advantage or whatever you want to call it for being on espn and no one would know because they haven't released how their metric works exactly so you have like the liberty pool boys don't look very good on other stuff but for the bpi they're a top 100 team Whereas BYU takes a massive hit, um, they're also an ESPN family thing. So you don't really even know how this is figured out or what it means. It's kind of all over the place. I think Cracked Sidewalks could have, I like what they did. They could have leaned into it a little more and just said, the PPI really does not reflect what the rest of the college basketball world thinks about these things. It There's a lot of deviation off of the mean here inside the BPI, regardless of whether it's talking ESPN teams or Fox teams or however you want to break it down. Uh, one thing kind of concomitant with this is uh, a post that John Gassaway put up on his blog today about um, how he believes the selection process should change for the NCAA tournament. Um, basically, you know, if you were going to decide that we should uh, – do a new basketball tournament. If you were going to put this into place today, probably the last thing you'd do is say, we're going to pick 12 people who watch a lot of basketball and just kind of put them in a room 
and tell them to come out with a 6018 bracket. Uh, basically, what he suggested was that um, the NCAA could come up with their own uh, kind of win proxy. Uh, you know, wins above bubble we cite a lot is a uh, a metric that tries to measure that. Strength of record is another one, but basically says, um, you know, measures which teams are the best out and out by this uh, by this metric, and then announce, you know, here's how the uh, metric works, here's how it'll be tracked, and after we fill in all the auto bids, the remaining top teams. Uh, and I think there's something on the order of 34, 36 at large bids at this point in time. Say the uh, you know the next 36 best teams in this metric will be the ones who go into the tournament, and then you would know on a day by day basis who's in, who's out, and who's on the bubble. And uh, you could watch, especially like in real time during championship week, as a team loses and their number drops, or they win and their number gets better. Uh, you know, watch teams rather than playing themselves into this corridor of uncertainty, play themselves to where they know, you know, I have won, I have done enough, I'm off the bubble and I'm in, or I've lost and now I've just got to root for the other teams to lose. And, uh, you know, he said that would increase transparency and increase the drama, uh, you know, coming down the stretch. And he makes a, uh, you know, pretty compelling argument. Obviously, the biggest argument against it is going to be people who hate technology or can't agree on how the uh, metric should be determined. But uh, compared to compare that process to um, having ESPN put their own proprietary blend on there that makes the teams they cover look better. I kind of think old John's onto something here. I like his idea. Um, and you guys know how much I love my beloved metrics, but. I kind of, I would like to see something change about it because I kind of like the uncertainty of the last week of not quite knowing who's going to make it and stuff. Selection Sunday, a lot of that to me is the unveiling and being like, oh man, they did do enough to get in. So I don't know if maybe you release it up until the last fortnight before Selection Sunday and say, okay, we're keeping it the same, but we're going dark now and then we'll unveil the bracket um, or something like that because I, I like selection Sunday and not knowing if you're there or not. I almost had a heart attack the year that Xavier was the last team announced, but it's fun. It's exciting that way, except for that one time when they leaked the bracket and that wasn't as much fun. And that's kind of what I think this would be like. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, if you have a, if you have the transparency though, that he's talking about, it would be fairly easy to mimic what the metrics would be saying in those last two weeks. You know, um, if if you know what the metrics look at and what they are, then you would know where everybody stands, whether they tell you where everybody stands or not. Um, it occurs to me, but, you know, because there are a lot of people who would do that math, <laughs> um, I wouldn't because I couldn't. But Bart Torvik probably could. Um, so anyway, uh the NCAA is announcing this weekend uh, their top 16 seeds um, currently. Uh, they're going to release that and, and let everybody know where everyone stands as of right now as we get closer to Selection Sunday, uh, which is less than a month away. Um, there was also uh, an incident between Clemson and Duke. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this, where uh, Duke's Wendell Moore was on a fast break. Clemson's uh, player David Collins 
Um, I mean, he undercut him <laughs> and uh, spiked him on the floor. It was pretty bad. Uh, Moore was thankfully okay. Um, he uh, he was able to. He didn't miss any uh, time. Uh, he was able to continue playing in that game and didn't have any uh, serious repercussions uh, from that, which, uh, you know, is what life is like when you're 19. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I would definitely have died if that happened to me. Um, but there was a, a quite a bit of hue and cry surrounding this incident. I don't know, did you guys um, see Colin's apology? Do you buy his apology? What? I mean, it was big news in college basketball this week. What was your uh, take on the Clemson-Duke incident, Brad? Um, for me, Collins is a fight on site now. Uh, if I'm a Duke player, I, that was ridiculous. I did see his apology, and I think that he means his apology, but I don't buy his reasoning at all. Is that, guys, I just run so super fast I couldn't control myself anymore because I'm so blazing fast. I mean, it's ridiculous. He clearly wiped the guy out. Um, I, well, it galls me to say this, but full credit to the Duke guys for not just beating him senseless right there on the floor, because I think in uh, some of the games we played in would have probably ended at that point in time. Uh, had that been a crosstown shootout, it certainly would have been over at that point in time. Uh, game would have been suspended. There would have been a lot more reflection sessions and everything, but I guess maybe the Duke guys, I've, I've switched courses. The Duke guys didn't do that, didn't fight because they're soft. Um, but that was ridiculous. He got a one game suspension for it. He should have gotten a lot more. You cannot let guys do that and then just miss that game. And then one more game. Um, cause that was the cheapest of cheap, cheap shots. The Duke player is completely defenseless when he's in the air like that. Uh, and he knows that and just takes him out hard. Doesn't try to help him down. It's not one of those where he kind of wraps the arms to commit the foul, but also not hurt the guy. Um, I think he made that play with intent to injure and genuinely felt bad about it later, but he should have, he should have been benched for six to 10 games, in my opinion, if not the rest of the season. Yeah, I uh, kind of agree with everything Brad's saying. Uh, he and I both were raised on a very no easy buckets ethos, um, but that wasn't no easy buckets. That was just the guy taking out a player who didn't have a chance to defend himself. Oh, one thing that bothered me, and like Brad said, I think the, the player sincerely regretted having done it. I don't think there was any truth to his uh, excuse of why it happened. I think he did what he intended to do and then later realized that his intent was stupid. But, uh, you know, Coach K basically didn't care. And if you'll recall, I don't know, it feels like it was three or four years ago, so it was probably 10 years ago, uh, Eli Brooks from Oregon committed the cardinal sin of shooting a wide open three when the game was already decided and coach k went in on him in the uh, handshake line and then again in the post game press conference and you know i don't understand why that was a bigger deal than taking the dude out of the air when he was going to land on his head in a uh, you know in an incident that would have killed somebody my age and thank god that dude was able to get up and walk it off so, you know, there, there was a lot not to like about that, both on the uh, Duke side and the, the Clemson side. Um, but I think the, the bottom line is a one-game suspension for that is laughable. I mean, that player safety all the way, uh, you got to shut that kid down for a while. 
five for no other reason than just to set the example. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think he probably did intend to run to him. I don't know the fit that he was intending to, you know, flip him on his head, but he definitely wanted to, to get into the guy. Um, what I thought of was, uh, well, watching coach K, you know, prance around in rage about the injustice was wait till someone shows him a clip of Grayson Allen. Holy cow. Is he going to be <laughs> upset about that? <laughs> I mean, whoo. <laughs> um, I mean, it, Grayson Allen did that same sort of thing three times before he got a one game suspension. So I'm not going to cry real tears uh, about this being a one game suspension. Cause I think a precedent has been set that people don't care about dirty play in college basketball. Um, but I do think more than one game would have been appropriate, even if he hadn't meant it, <laughs> um, you know, you get a couple games to weigh down your shoes. So you don't run into people anymore. Uh, but that could very easily have ended in a much more severe injury than it did, which was no injury at all. So um, anyway, uh, Xavier did play this week. Um, they went to uh, Seton Hall and uh, Tommy, if you've heard this one before, they played very poorly in the first half. Okay. And then in the second half, they played super duper well, fought back and then lost the game right at the end. So I don't know. It was a pretty novel experience watching that happen, to be honest. Um, so I guess was, the, I mean, there were a couple of ridiculous calls that went against Xavier in this game, um, especially at the end. Was that, uh, was Xavier's second half good enough to win this game or were they, were they, I mean, would they still have come up short even if the calls had been made correctly, Joel? You know, you hate to say officiating was the reason that Xavier lost this game. So what I will say is that Xavier's first half was once again the reason that they lost the game. Howsoever, uh, at the end of the game, they had overcome the first half. And that should have been enough for them to win. And, um, you know, if the rules had been applied, maybe the way that they're written, it would have. Um, but they weren't, so it wasn't. People talk about, uh, you know, the human element. You hear it a lot in baseball with every umpire has his own, like, custom strike zone. Uh, the human element should be about how well the players are able to, uh, you know, execute what they got, um, you know, the game plan. What happened is that the the human element of officials getting drawn into the game and, uh, you know, making calls based on emotion or just flat out blowing calls that they should have been able to make pretty easily. And, uh, you know, I think the one that got us all was uh, Colby Jones's and one getting wiped off the board. And, uh, you know, that's not, the, the rules should be, enforced as equitably as possible and as close to possible as how they're written in the you know rule book and they weren't and that uh, as much as anything cost Xavier the game uh, we had like a 15 minute ref show down at the end uh, on an inbound pass that pretty clearly hit only Jared Roden and uh, they called it off of Paul Scruggs 
So, um, you know, I don't think in the locker room, Coach Steele would have said to the team, hey, we lost that because of the officials. But they will know that had the officials gotten it right, Xavier would have once again uh, pulled off their Houdini act and escaped a horrible first half. So, and I think the, that's what you—that's what you're asking the officials to do, right? I mean, it's just to make the game be played on a level playing field. Yes, Xavier played poorly to start, and yes, they shot four or fourteen from behind the arc and weren't great from the line, but they still did enough to win the game by the way the rules are written. But they didn't win the game, and I think I, I'm like you. I hate saying I hate it when people say in like a like a Super Bowl, if you will, complain that the officiating changed the course of the game because clearly like in that case, it didn't. And most of the time with Xavier this year, it hasn't. The officiating has been bad and people are like, Oh, they cost us the game. Well, no, they didn't. You know, if you shoot 18% behind the arc, that'll cost you the game. In this case though, Xavier played well enough to have won that game by the rules, but the referees didn't call the game by the rules. So if you suddenly change it from basketball to something that looks a lot like basketball, but isn't quite basketball, but still count that as Xavier's basketball record, then the referees did cost them this game. And I think, like you mentioned, Joel, that Colby Jones call was just a terrible. Two officials signaled that the basket counted, and then they waved it off. Well, they didn't actually wave it off. They never made any sort of indication that it hadn't counted. And then they sent him to the line for two, and they also never explained it to Travis Steele. So everyone is still utterly in the dark as to why that basket didn't count. There was never an explanation for it. So I, I, that's just, you can't do that. And we've said this over and over again. There's no oversight. Nothing's going to change. They're going to cost another team a game and probably one that matters even more. Um, an NCAA tournament game or something like that's going to get changed on a bad call. And every college basketball fan who's paying attention is going to say, I saw this coming all year. And it's just very frustrating. I will say you, what was a good call was the technical on Zach Fremantle. I, one of the dumbest things I've ever seen a player do on a basketball court. Uh, absolutely infuriating. And honestly, him fouling out of that game is what got Xavier back into it. But um, I used a work word when I described it during the uh, in the article I wrote. But my son is probably going to listen to this podcast, so I won't. But I mean, just moronic. Don't step over somebody who's laying on the ground when your team's behind and you've been playing like utter and complete garbage the whole game. If you're LeBron stepping over Draymond Green to let him know who the boss is, that's one thing. But if you're Zach Fremantle currently riding a one for nine from the floor, maybe reach down and help him up or just step around the young man and go to the other end of the floor with your mouth shut. So a couple things here. A, if I'm LeBron, I'm not stepping over Draymond Green. I don't know if you know the history of that relationship, but uh, LeBron's not straddling Draymond anytime soon because uh, he's not going to feel safe doing that. I wouldn't, at least. Two, can your son not read? I mean, like, I know you're not going to say the word, but he could very easily read it. Right? Can he read? He's 12. Yes, he can read 12. well. He just doesn't always read the articles because he prefers to listen to the podcast. Okay. Well, anyway. does he know he can hit that button at the top of any article on the SBN uh, constellation of blogs and it'll play it for him out loud? I don't know why you guys are trying to get my son to hear the mildly offensive word that I used in our article. Maybe we're just trying to hold you accountable in the way the officials never are. 
Do you like accountability or not, Brad? How about some consistency? I only like it when it applies to other people because I'm an American. Oh, yeah. <laughs> accountability for everyone else. I'm above the law. Anyway, uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, above the law, Cesar Edwards was kind of a story from this game. He got um, his first Big East action and uh, provided eight points and uh, a rebound and a, a clutch foul in his 10 minutes. Um, Joel, what did we see from him? And um, I mean, yeah, what did you see from him in that game? Is he uh, a viable piece for Xavier moving forward? Um, I saw a lot of hair and a lot of fearlessness. He uh, chucked up a three-pointer that in the absence of gravity wouldn't have even hit the ground. And that didn't seem to face him at all. Uh, you know what? Uh, in the hands of a lesser attorney, that would be a problem, but not Cesar Edwards. He just figured that was a range finder. And then uh, <clears throat> went on to shoot four, four from inside the arc. Uh, he was not afraid of anybody seeing Hall through at him. Uh, Coach Steele said that he he seeks out contact. And, uh, you know, that scouting report sure came to life in the game. Uh, you know, when he touched the ball, he seemed like he thought that his teammates wouldn't have passed it to him if they didn't want him to try to score. So that's what he went ahead and did. And uh, like Brad said, Zach Fremantle brought an energy to the game, but it wasn't a specifically good one. And uh, Cesar just brought uh, a lot of fire the whole time he was on the floor. And that uh, kind of flipped the momentum and helped Xavier climb back into it. So you know, I loved what we saw out of him. Travis Steele said he loved it. Uh, he said he was trying to get him some run in the UConn game, but with Sonogo in foul trouble, uh, UConn kept going small, which uh, makes it a lot harder for Cesar to play defense. So, uh, you know, against uh, the bigger teams in the league and especially in the tournament, I wouldn't be surprised to see him uh, get some more playing time. Yeah, I thought he was really, really impressive. I'm hoping he doesn't uh, end up getting, you know, like <laughs> Elias Hardened or Dontarius James, where everyone uh, everyone is pining for more of him. Um, anyway, that takes us to the weekend where uh, Xavier was back home in action against UConn, um, and Xavier came away with a 74 to 68 win. So this was uh, this one felt like an old school. Big East grinder, kind of. Um, neither team got off to a good start offensively, but it was incredibly physical and an incredibly intense game. Brad, how did Xavier come away with the victory there? Uh, because of Jack Nunji, which I think is a thing that we've said a lot this year. Um, the guy is just so skilled that once Sonogo got into foul trouble, UConn didn't really have anybody who could play with Nunji. Um, he moved around the floor. Uh, Coach Steele kind of used him a lot like he did in that Creighton game in the comeback there. And Nunji's just red hot right now. He scored another 22 points. He had a really, really good game. And I also think that Xavier played as close to a complete 40 minutes as they have in the Big East. I mean, I don't think anybody ever plays a 40-minute game where they are excellent for all 40 minutes. And Xavier did have, kind of have a lull in the first half, but it wasn't their full-on swoon. And this time, while they were having an offensive lull in the first half, they still played really, really good defense. Um, they didn't let UConn get out away from them. And then once X got up and running, 
uh, they were able to take control of the game and put it away. I think Paul Scruggs kind of quietly had a pretty good game. Um, he had been good, really good against Seton Hall. wasn't quite as good against UConn, but Jack Nungy once again really, really made the difference. Um, I, I know we talked about it in our season preview, whether he would be able to play big minutes this year. Um, and he has done that without any trouble. I mean, he logged 35. Uh, he, he occasionally, when he gets tired, you can tell, cause that man can look tired, um, but he occasionally looks tired, but he, he controlled that game for Xavier when they needed big shots. He made them when they needed to stop, um, UConn possessions. He grabbed the rebounds. He had a blocked shot. So I, that came down to Jack Nungy and the whole team playing some good defense. And that was just a huge, huge win. Xavier needed something like that. Uh, we'll talk about it later. But barring a absolute catastrophe, winning that game pretty much punched their ticket to the NCAA tournament. So um, Xavier did get off to uh, a better start than they had been. They led by... Uh, three points at uh, at halftime, which was the first time they led uh, at the half against a real college basketball team this year, this calendar year. Um, Joel, why was Xavier able to get off to a better start than they had been getting off to? Um, it's simplistic, but they, they made shots. And I think one thing that uh, was really encouraging to see was Nate Johnson put the ball on the deck and, you know, attacked inside the arc. We've spilled so much digital ink on his shooting slump, but the, uh, you know, kind of the reality is that he was making himself more one-dimensional offensively in the conference than he had been in the non-con. And that was, uh, I don't know if that was part of it, but it certainly wasn't helping. And he seemed to um, come out determined to uh, attack off the dribble. And that made a, a huge difference. Uh, he stuck a long jumper. He made a really tricky layup. And then, of course, he, uh, he hit a couple of three-pointers. And when Xavier's getting scoring from Nate Johnson, they are a night and day different team. And, you know, it, it may simply just come down to how well he's able to play that dictates how far Xavier goes in March. Um, you know, the only other thing that has kind of been a determining factor has been how well uh, Paul Scruggs and Jack Nungy work in high ball screen action and against uh, good shot blockers like Ryan Kalkbrenner and like Adama Sanogo, uh, Steele has made it a point to get um, Nungy setting that screen for Scruggs and then force the big man to make a decision. And if Nunji makes, you know, two or six threes like he did against UConn, that makes that that action incredibly difficult to defend. So I think those two factors kept Xavier afloat at a time where they're usually uh, fairly mediocre. And then they were able to just kind of uh, walk that win probability graph all the way down to their side of the screen and uh, take it away late. Yeah, I did think that... Um... Colby Jones was a big factor. He he only had eight points, but they were all in the first half. Um, and obviously he's kind of uh, struggled to find a scoring touch in the last couple of weeks. But having him and Johnson combined for 18 points uh, in the first half, I think helped Xavier because 
uh, Fremantle and Scruggs kind of took their time to get going. And then once those guys got going, you know, Johnson and Jones could could step back a little bit. They both played very good defense. And obviously Jack Nungy was kind of a consistent factor. But I did think that um, having a lot of different guys that UConn had to worry about on defense um, really helped. And obviously um, Dan Hurley deciding to run out and get a technical foul at a pretty pivotal moment helped. Uh, so I don't know. It wasn't a good call, but goodness sake, uh, you can't get a technical at that point, um, in my opinion. Uh, not in Dan's opinion. He just went out there and did it. He handed Xavier two points uh, to help one of their one of their uh, many runs in the second half. Um, so after that week, Xavier went one and one, which um, we classified last week as not a disaster. Um, and I stand by that. But um how is Xavier looking as far as the NCAA tournament goes, Brad? Are we going to be sweating it again this year? Is it going to come down to the wire? Are we going to be squinting and saying, I can see a path for Xavier? Um, what's it looking like? I, the only reason that Xavier will be sweating this out or this comes down to the wire is if they lose the home game to St. John's or if they lose to Georgetown. Um, do either of those things or do both of those things and this gets a little murky. Other than that, they can genuinely afford to go two and four in the last six games, and they will be in easy. Um, if you look back, Bart Torvik has a really good tool that has kind of aggregated all the previous resumes and tournaments and who gets in and who gets out, and he uses that to figure teams <clears throat> as making it. Even if Xavier goes two and four the rest of the way, they'll have about a 90% shot of making the tournament on their team cast. And, of course, based on other teams' resumes right now. That can change, so you don't want to bank on that. But if Xavier splits it, goes three and three the rest of the way, they're essentially a lock. Um, you know, there's the Big East tournament to consider. <clears throat> there are, you know, other teams making a run to consider. But right now, Xavier is in really, really good shape just so long as they don't lose to St. John's at home and don't lose to Georgetown. Do that. And you've given the committee something to look at. I think the only concerning number right now maybe is wins above bubble. Xavier's 32nd in the nation in that, which isn't great. They don't quite have two wins above bubble yet. Um, and you'd like to see that bounce up. They've got plenty of chances to increase that number. And that's where the DePaul loss really hurt them. They were above two prior to that. But everywhere else, uh, Xavier's a top 25 team. They're 24th in the Massey composite. Um, they look good. Uh, this is not going to be like 2020 where we were sweating it out and then it turned out there wasn't anything or last year while where they were in trouble because they just didn't have that non-conference to lean on. Um, as long as Xavier doesn't do something ridiculous, they're in really good shape right now. And it's Selection Sunday is going to be more about watching to see what the matchups are than watching to see if we're going to be in or not. Well, there you go. Um and hopefully the matchup is, you know, like Hofstra or something. Uh, Portland State. Right. That's who I want. <laughs> you know, getting eight, nine game against Utah Valley. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how any of those teams are looking. Um, anyway, uh, I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh, yes, we drew them. And then we get our butts kicked like Maryland in 2017, where they were like, yeah, Xavier. And then. They regretted that. Um, so 
this week, uh, Xavier had a first for the season because Ben Stanley uh, took home the green jersey or green good gold jersey. Um, and I like to imagine that the guys get to wear it back to their dorm rooms and like, you know, they 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 sleep in it because it's such a huge honor. But um, anyway, is the gold jersey something that should matter to the fans, Joel? Um, so far, I mean, this year they announce it every week. Coach Steele, you know, write a little blurb about the guy who won it and how many times he's won it and all that. Is that something that fans should really be keyed in on? I'm going to say no. And the reason I'm going to say no is just, um, you know, sometimes I question if what the gold jersey is tracking has a direct kind of one-to-one correlation to what wins basketball games. Coach Steele, um, like you said, he tweets it out. And then he talks about how uh, playing time is earned in practice. But if you track who has ostensibly been the very best practice player in the whole wide world among people who play at Xavier, and then watch how that translates to playing time in games, um, there seems to be a disconnect, right? So uh, Paul Scruggs has won it four times. I think it's obvious that the coaching staff loves Paul Scruggs. regardless of maybe how you feel about the way Paul Scruggs is executed during certain portions of certain games. We all agree that he is not coming off during winning time unless he has fouled out or lost multiple appendages. Uh, You know, the next two are Adam Kunkel and Colby Jones. Colby Jones is another guy who who gets a lot of burn, but uh, Kunk seems to be more of a situational player. Uh, Deontay Miles, I'm sorry, so Scruggs has won it four. Kunk and Jones have won it three times each. Uh, Jerome Hunter, Zach Fremantle, Nate Johnson, and Deontay Miles, not only uh, being a game of pick, the one that doesn't fit, but they have also each won it twice. Uh, you know, Deontay has um, been working through some some physical limitations, but, uh, you know, certainly his... Uh, Playing time has not paralleled that of Hunter Fremantle and Johnson, despite um, earning as many gold jerseys as they have. And then Ben Stanley and Jack Nunji have each won it one time. Um, If you're scoring at home, Ben Stanley has something on the order of like 45, 46 minutes played. Jack Nunji has carried the team for stretches and according to gold jersey tally they have each been equally effective in being the best player in practice and ben stanley more recently than jack nunji so all of that uh kind of a long-winded way to say you know not only i don't think fans should care at all who won the gold jersey but i would question the efficacy of the gold jersey in general, because it doesn't seem to match up with how the coaching staff actually sees that uh, playing time should be allotted, and especially when uh, meaningful games are on the line. So get with me to uh, rework the Xavier way, I guess is what I'm saying, Trav. Joke's going to be on you when Ben Stanley starts tomorrow night. I would honestly (laughs) love to see that. I would like to see like 22 and four from Ben Stanley tomorrow. I I'm pretty sure we won't see Deontay miles start tomorrow night. Cause like you mentioned, he has not, he's won the gold Jersey a couple times. 
uh, since the Crosstown shootout when he played eight minutes. And since the shootout, he's played a grand total of 14 minutes, uh, which is not a lot. So, yeah, there does seem to be some disconnect there between how well you play in practice and how that translates to the game. I also think, though, that there are it's like with Edwards against UConn. There are some limitations to when guys, even if they're playing well, can be out there. You don't want Cesar Edwards chasing somebody, you know, who's six inches shorter than him around the three point line. So even if he had a great practice, that may not necessarily translate into playing in that game. Right. Um, anyway, uh, an interesting thing about the Big East this season is that Georgetown is chasing history um, because they are <laughs> currently 210th in the Ken Palm. They are uh, trying to chase down 2016 St. John's as the worst team in Big East history um, of the Ken Palm era. Joel, can they do it? I mean, it's like it's like the speed skating at the Olympics. St. John's in 2016, they had Chris Mullen, and they just threw down a ridiculous lap. And now Georgetown is going all out. Um, they're all over this mountain trying to trying to best them. Uh, are they going to get there? Wait, you do know people don't speed skate down mountains, right? Well, much I, as I, I think that would be a blast to watch. <laughs> okay, I mixed my metaphor. You can't pronounce words right. Shut up. Anyway. Yeah, so if we're going to dig into the Olympic metaphor just a little bit further, uh, you know, Great Britain had that uh, Eddie the Eagle ski jumper who fell off the side of the ski jump ramp and basically nosedove right into the snow. That's what we're watching from Georgetown right now. No men's basketball team has ever started a season worse than 0-18 in conference. Georgetown is at 0-13 now. And I think they have every chance to go 0 and 19 and set a new record. And if there was any reason other than morbid curiosity to reschedule their other game against Xavier, they may very well go 0 and 20. Uh, their next their next two games are at Marquette and at Villanova. Ken Palm gives them a six percent and a two percent chance to win either of those games. They got a home game to DePaul. Uh, which is looking like, well, it is their best remaining opportunity to steal a win. But DePaul has been really living up to that world's okayest basketball team mug lately. And, uh, you know, they're definitely the better of these two teams right now. Home game against UConn. And then they finish uh, on the road to Seton Hall. And then, of course, Ed Xavier. Um, You know, it's gotten past the point where it's funny to me. If this were a different team, say Cincinnati, it would still be hilarious. But, uh, you know, Georgetown is one of the the big programs in the Big East. They were one of the teams I was looking forward to playing. Well, I'm not playing, but watching Xavier play against when uh, X joined the league. When they are just there, they have gone from a, a marquee program to you know, they would be mid-pack in most mid-major conferences. Uh, if you had just sat down and drawn out kind of a worst-case scenario for their season this year, if you had done an, an imaginary um, kind of thought exercise, what would it take for Patrick Ewing to get fired this year? Other than like a sex scandal and burning down the gymnasium, 
he has hit everything he possibly could have. I mean, they have just been abject. They have, you know, no good wins. They have a, a litany of bad losses, perhaps not the uh, least of which was their season opening loss to Dartmouth. That could, in retrospect, be seen as kind of the canary in the coal mine for this season as far as whether or not they would carry any uh, momentum from winning the conference tournament last year. Um, they're just in shambles. They're the uh, 11th ranked offense in our 11 team league. They're the 11th ranked defense. They are 11th in offensive effective field goal percentage. They are 11th in defensive effective field goal percentage. They are 11th in two-point shooting. They are 11th in two-point defense. They're just bad in kind of a, a tragic old yeller kind of way in where you're, uh, you know, your beloved family pet. It's it's time to say goodbye. Um, you know, the Patrick Ewing era needs driven to that uh, farm upstate that all good dogs go to at the uh, the end. But whoever gets this job next is going to have a multi-year project to dig out of the wreckage. And I just, you know, Xavier fans, every time X loses, are are looking forward to finding out who replaces Travis Steele. Uh, this is a cautionary tale, because if you replace the guy who is okay-ish and you don't like him with somebody who is going to suck the paint off the walls, you might end up in a Georgetown situation. I mean, you say they have no good wins. They did beat Syracuse. And if Georgetown can follow this thing through to the end, they could well end up as a Q4 loss on Syracuse's resume. (laughs) And so I, I hold no ill will toward the Georgetown program. I, I always liked Georgetown when I was a kid. You know, when they had Ruben Boomche Boomche and Allen Iverson and all those guys. Um, but I'd be lying if I if I said that I didn't hope they saw this thing through and uh, kept Syracuse out of the tournament by being a, a Q4 loss. Um, at this point, I think that might actually be the best outcome for Georgetown fans. Is I mean, it Georgetown? On- Sunday. Georgetown is 0-14 in the top two quadrants. That right. Is, I mean, that's just incredible. On Sunday, though, they say, well, Georgetown uh, somehow lost to DePaul by 50, and so we couldn't put Syracuse in the tournament because Syracuse lost to Georgetown. <laughs> um, I think that would make this, it wouldn't make this all worth it, but I think it would put a smile on a few faces in the Georgetown fan base. And, uh, you know, that's that's probably the best they can hope for this this season is <laughs> smile about at the end. And uh, maybe it's, you know, making Jim Beheim sad. Um, it would make me. <laughs> um, anyway, just thinking about it makes me smile. You know, just Georgetown fans. Think about that for a second. It'll pick your day right up. Ruining Jim Beheim's March. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So it's not going well. But, um, you know. Obviously, you get on the phone, you call Brad Stevens. If he says no, you call Beeline, um, and you go from there. You know, those are your first two calls. Uh, anyway, uh, Brad, let's uh, cue the theme music. All right. 
that was Country Roads. I, uh, you know, I don't particularly like that song, but I don't know why he picked it. So anyway, uh, who did you pick for Xavier Player of the Week? Uh, I picked Jack Nungy because he went for a handy 44, 14, and 1 this week. Um, I do like the one in there as if one time he passed it to somebody and they didn't manage to score. And it kind of uh, took a little bit of the weight off of him for a second. There comes a point in most games recently where it looks like it dawns on Jack Nungy that he's just going to have to do this again. Um, it's usually about the time the ninth three-pointer in a row goes begging. Uh, he's He gets that look where he's like, well, here I go again. And this week, uh, here he went again. Uh, he's just really good. Really, really good. I mean, he's the 28th most effective offensive player in the nation. Um, and he does that while also being a really good defensive player. I don't know how you could pick anybody other than him this week. Now, if you guys did, I'd be interested to hear that. But he had a really good week um, in the game that Xavier uh, played pretty well against Seton Hall, that building block loss. Um, he was really good. And then he was really good against Connecticut, um, who has an excellent front line. Um, he kind of made those guys a not, not a non-factor, but he kept them from being effective because they just couldn't find a way to stop him. Uh, so I picked Jack Nungy this week. Um, in my mind, he is still chugging up and down the court, looking super exhausted and scoring. That's how I'm going to remember him. I mean, remember, like, <laughs> you'll probably I'm just saying, when he, he leaves Xavier, when he leaves Xavier, my indelible image of Jack Nungy is going to be like, Man, that dude who keeps scoring looks so tired. Good, oh, good news about Jack Nungy and Phil Knight, both still with us. Mine's going to be him with the net around his neck after uh, winning the national championship. Because um, that's how Jack Nungy's leaving Xavier. Anyway, Joel, who's your Xavier Player of the Week? I mean, it's Jack Nungy. Why would we? <laughs> why would we disguise it? It's going to be a clean sweep. Joel, talk about Jack Nungy for a little while. Did you write a poem? No, though that's not beyond me, and maybe I should. But realistically speaking, I was in high school when Jack Nungy was born, and that'd probably be uncomfortable for him. So out of respect for Jack, I haven't written a poem. Uh, you know, Brad, Brad touched on the good stuff here. Uh, what I will throw out there is that Jack Nungy committed zero turnovers this week. Uh, he had more blocks than turnovers because he had one block. He had more steals than turnovers because he had two steals. Jack Nungy committed six fouls across 70 minutes of play, which is uh, maybe suboptimal, but certainly not something that you've got to burn your Jack Nungy jerseys over. Uh, he drew eight fouls in the UConn game alone. So Brad said that he didn't relegate their front line to non-factors. But he kind of did because he single-handedly almost fouled out a couple of different uh, frontline players. And, I mean, he's just an animal. He has done everything Xavier has asked of him, everything that you could have reasonably expected and more. And, you know, he comes along in that, that legacy of big men who are just ridiculously effective and efficient. I'm thinking of uh, Matt Stainbrook who is a great transfer big man, uh, Zach Hankins, who is a great transfer big man. But Nungy adds the wrinkle of also being a knockdown shooter from outside. And I think that is what, uh, you know, has made him such a difficult matchup in the league. And it is one of the many, many reasons he earned my vote for Xavier Player of the Week this week. 
yeah, I mean, I, I, I went with Jack Nunji as well. Um, I don't, I don't always like it when we have uh, the clean sweep because it, it does seem to stifle the conversation, but I don't know how you could make a logical argument that anyone other than Jack Nunji was Xavier's best player this week. Um, I thought Colby Jones showed flashes, you know, he's still not scoring that efficiently, but, um, especially against UConn, he did all the other things well, including, um, being right, he was the instigator in both technicals. So apparently Colby Jones is irritating to play basketball against. And I can see it. But uh, Jack Nungy was just incredible in both games. I mean, gets fouled a lot. And um, against Seton Hall, he was bad from the line. But against uh, Connecticut, he was 8 for 10. And more importantly, he was 4 for 4 in the last minute, 20 seconds. Um, because Xavier <laughs> was was struggling at the line a little bit toward the end and Jack Nungy stepped in, knocked all four of his down. Um, so I think, you know, it has to be him. If I said anyone else, it would just be for the hot takery, which uh, is not my role here. It's Brad's. So anyway, uh, speaking of which, Brad, uh, what are we uh, looking forward to with St. John's? And before we get to that, um, in honor of Braden, who is also still with us, uh, we got a Marcellus Arlington watch. He's averaging 13.8 points and 6.7 rebounds right now for San Diego, um, the Toreros, and he's shooting 36% from three. So I still don't know why Xavier didn't pick him up because he's amazing. Anyway, St. John's uh, looked like they had breathed life into their March Madness hopes with a couple of easy wins and then went, went right ahead and killed them. <laughs> Um, what do they have to do here at the end of the season? I mean, other than perform a miracle. Uh, well, they're not going to the tournament, uh, because of their last two games. Um, but the reason they lost those two games probably has a lot to do with Posh Alexander's ankle injury. Um, I, he's going to be a game time decision against Xavier. He might play. Uh, that's as much as we can find out about that. If he does play, I'll watch for what has been a mercilessly ineffective three-point barrage from him. He's currently 11 of 52 behind the arc for the season. Uh, that's 21.2%, but Posh is not letting him that slow him down. I guess never up, never in for old Posh. Uh, he is a defensive menace. If he plays, he's going to cause problems if he's at full speed. Otherwise, they're going to rely a lot on Aaron Wheeler and Julian Champagny. Um, we kind of know uh, Champagny from his time there. He's a, a good player. He's solid. He's going to do what Julian Champagny does. Um, Aaron Wheeler's a little bit more of an unknown just by virtue of he's coming from Purdue, where he didn't play as much as he's played this year. Uh, he's going to block shots. He's effective on the inside, but he's not uh, always a bunch scorer, but he can. Uh, against Villanova, he went for 31, but he. You know, he's had games this year where he also scored zero. So he be up and down. Uh, my prediction is that against Xavier, he'll be somewhere between 31 and zero points. Um, Actually, you can write that down. Put that on the whiteboard. We can call that back. Uh, I don't think he'll score negative points, and I don't think he'll go for 32 or more. But Xavier, this is another one of those games that Xavier should win. Um, If they don't win, it's a serious, serious problem. Losing this would be more serious than losing to DePaul was. Um, 
losing this game puts Xavier in the position where they have to win something else. Um, and they their other games are difficult. This is a it's a game you got to win. They need to pick it up at home. It doesn't have to be pretty. It's got to be a win, though. Uh, the only real problem I could see where maybe St. John's could could cause an issue with Xavier is that St. John's gets burned from deep but plays really good interior defense. And Xavier tends to not shoot very well from deep and rely on their interior offense. Um, so that'd be one thing worth keeping an eye on. But this is this is a game that X should win. They need to win to shore up their, not to shore up, but to just keep their tournament hopes clicking along. Got to put this one in the W column. Yeah, I mean, I think with with Mike Anderson at the helm, um, this is his third year at St. John's. He's not really had a normal year there, and um, they lost a lot, but this is definitely his worst team at St. John's so far. Um, so that's disappointing for him because um, obviously picking up the pieces from the Chris Mullen era, he'd have hoped for to have that moving a little better by now. Um, but, you know, they're in the mid eighties and Ken Palm, and I don't know that anyone's giving them a realistic shot of making the, the tournament. And then Xavier's also going to travel to Connecticut um, on Saturday. Obviously Xavier just played Connecticut. So I don't know that we need to go over what Connecticut does. It's, you know, uh, have RJ Cole go off and block tons of shots. Uh, it's still that <laughs> they, they didn't get all new players in the week between these games. Uh, so uh, that game's going to be played, I believe at the Gamble pavilion where uh, Connecticut's a little tougher than at the XL center. So that's not good. Um, but anyway, um, we got a couple of quick hits here at the end because uh, we didn't have any questions on Twitter this week. So we're just going to, um, fill this time by being doofuses. So uh, obviously this Sunday, uh, a lot of our listeners were disappointed to uh, to watch the Bengals lose in the Super Bowl. Um, so in solidarity, what sports loss has been the hardest for you guys to uh, get over, move on from? Uh, because that I can imagine being a tough one. I'll be honest, I was cheering for the Rams, but I can identify with Bengals fans and sympathize with them. Um, even though I am not sad they lost. So Joel, uh, what do you go back to? I go back to the 2016 world series with the, uh, Cleveland guardians against the Chicago Cubs. That was just like the whole season and especially the postseason, just all set up to be such a storybook finish for the the Indians as they were known then. Little known fact, the Guardians used to be called the Indians. Um, and like the whole thing just seemed to be building towards that game seven victory at Jacobs Field. And then it actually wasn't. Um, like an episode of South Park, we found out it wasn't our movie. It was someone else's. And like every every storybook, buy the DVD and play it till it breaks moment from that season is now just purged from my memory banks because I have absolutely no interest in it whatsoever because it's like thinking about the, the best date you had with a girl who you later found out cheated on you. 
um, there are there are no good memories from that season for me because it just built to such a kick in the zipper that I, uh, you know, it, it it's just dead to me. It is completely ruined and I'll never get any of that back. Uh, there are plenty of painful memories for a Cleveland sports fan, but uh, what puts that one over the top is that I had kids who were old enough to kind of understand what was going on. And so as I stood in the living room catatonic, um, they all just broke down. And I understood the burden that my dad carries of having betrayed your children by raising them to be Cleveland sports fans. And, uh, you know, now I I don't push them to cheer for the teams that I cheer for, except for Xavier, because I don't want them to bite that poisoned apple. Yeah, I mean, your son was cheering for the Bengals on Sunday, and um, that also didn't work out for him. So, anyway, uh, Brad, what do you got? Um, I had two that I was thinking of, and that was definitely one of them. Um, I know that a lot of Cleveland fans love that Rajai Davis home run. I've seen that exactly one time um, when it happened, and I have no desire to see it again. So I'm going to, since Joel took that, I'm going to go to uh, the Xavier one seed loss against Florida State. Um, we have probably not famously, but famously in our own minds, we never wrote a recap for that game. Um, we've never discussed it. We've never broken down what happened. Uh, I still don't want to do those things. I, do, I just, I don't understand. Um, in the last 10 minutes, Xavier got outscored 29 to 14. And I think that that team had a legitimate chance to go to the final four and win the tournament. And I don't think it's being too homerish to say that, um, especially when you see the run that Florida State went on after that game. Um, Xavier was very, very good that year. Uh, I don't know. Like, that was just a, a brutal ending to a season. Um, it had the double brutality, I guess, of of JP's phantom fouling out um, to finish his senior year when he was doing so well of Trayvon Blewett's mysterious disappearance for an entire game uh, to end his career at Xavier. It was just, just rough. I clicked on the box score in preparation for this. About the only thing I see in it that is mildly interesting is that Ike Obiagu was actually playing for Florida State at that point in time, which is a thing that I have so thoroughly purged this game from my mind. I had totally forgotten that he had played there. <laughs> I... That was actual genuine news to me because I've tried as hard as I can to forget this game. Just to really, really flush out how awful this was, uh, X went on a 17-3 to run in the second half and at one point in time had a 94.5% chance of winning with under 10 minutes to play and then somehow still managed to lose by five. Uh, it's just rough. Rough, rough, rough. That one in that 2016 Game 7 uh, are going to take me a long time to get over. Yeah. Um, see, I go I go to the 2016 Xavier-Wisconsin game, actually. Um, more so than even the, the World Series that year or the 2018 game because... Um, there are there are few Xavier players that I've liked as much as I liked Remy Abel. Um, 
I thought he embodied a lot of what it means to be a Xavier player because he was tough as nails. He would literally fight you for the ball and he made a lot of really smart plays. And then to see his career end like that, uh, it's another one I've only ever seen live because uh, I can't bring myself to go watch that again. Um, I don't know any of the other highlights from that game. I do remember Jalen Reynolds had some ridiculous, like running down the floor, tipping the ball over people before dunking it. And when he did that, I was like, oh, we're for sure going to win. And then we didn't. Um, that was also the last game Larry Austin ever played at Xavier. Um, so I don't know. I mean, if they, maybe if, maybe if Larry would have been unleashed, uh, Xavier could have won that game, but I thought that was a Xavier team that could have done some damage in the tournament as well. Um, because I think we would have slapped around that, that dumb North Carolina team. And then obviously Larry would have blocked the Chris Jenkins shot in the national championship and we'd have taken it to OT and one. So we were robbed and added to that was that completely horrendous charge call on Edmund Sumner where uh, Zach Showalter just throws himself to the ground instead of play defense. Um, my hatred for Zach Showalter has transferred on to Brad Davison because I think they're the same person. And so that's why I hate Brad Davison so much too. Um, but anyway, that's it for me. Um, now on to something a little, little more uh, lighthearted. Uh, because I found out over the weekend, um, this is not news because it happened several years ago, but um, Newcastle United legend Alan Shearer was, uh, while he was their captain, named a Freeman, honorary Freeman of the city of Newcastle upon time, which means technically Alan Shearer is allowed to uh, bring his cattle into graze in Newcastle's town more if he so chose and no one would be able to stop him. So, what sporting figure would you like to give a unique civil right to, and what would it be, Joel? Um, I would take Carlos Cookie Carrasco, um, fastball changeup pitcher for the Cleveland Indians slash Guardians, uh, who's since been traded away to the New York Mets. Um, first of all, the the reason I like Cookie so much is he and I are birthday buddies. We were both born on the same day, albeit not the same year. And back in my uh, slightly less decorated baseball career. I also threw 90% fastballs and changeups, though my fastball was slower than Carrasco's changeup. Um, but he just seems like a genuinely nice dude. Uh, I haven't heard any of uh, his teammates or people who covered the team have any bad things to say about him. And uh, I would allow him to come to my city of Columbus, Ohio, and borrow any animal he would like from the zoo. Um, he spends a lot of time working with uh, children's cancer charities. And he also just seems like the kind of guy who would like animals and animals would like him. So I think if uh, Cookie rocked up to the zoo and asked for like a, uh, you know, a python or a meerkat or whatever, he should be able to just take it away and bring it back whenever he wants to. Okay, uh, Brad, now this one's a tough one. What do you got? Um, I am going to pick former Indians third baseman, Travis Fryman. Um, and I would like to give him free rides on the Miller Ferry 
back and forth to Putin Bay or whichever island he would like to go to for the rest of his life because um, he was just incredibly stoic all the time when he played. But everybody who gets on a ferry to go out to the islands is happy. So I would hope that maybe if we just let him ride the boat back and forth for long enough, he might finally be happy. Maybe that's what he's looking for in life. And he would grow like a great big pirate beard. And just everybody would be like, wow, that guy's super cheery all the time. So you with know my, how pirates are. I'm going to try to do a good deed and cheer up Travis Fryman by giving him free boat rides as much as he wants. Okay. I'm going to go. Uh, he's gotten a lot of hatred this year, but I love Baker Mayfield. Um, and I love it when he shows up to Indians games and shotguns a beer on the Jumbotron. Um, but I'm going to say Baker Mayfield now has the right to throw out the first pitch at any a Guardians game he wants. And if he so chooses, continue pitching, except when it's Shane Bieber's. Uh, because Indians are, are, I mean, people say they have a lot of starting pitching. They really don't. Um, and so I think if, if Bake wants to go out there and give it the old college try, they need to let him. Uh, because the man, the man has connected with the city of Cleveland. So that's, that's mine. If, if Baker Mayfield wants to start pitching for the Cleveland Indians, unless Shane Bieber vetoes it, he gets to. Um, although, I, would I let Shane Bieber quarterback the Browns? Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest. Uh, sure. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so that is uh, that's what we have for this week. Xavier is back in action. Um, they will be uh, hosting St. John's this week before traveling to Connecticut uh, on Saturday. So we will be back with you guys next week while we look ahead to uh, a trip to see all of Joel's fans in Providence. And we will catch you guys then. <laughs> I'm not going to